We're in chapter 5 of the book of Exodus. Moses is going to address Pharaoh. We're going to walk through that passage. How many have heard of a, a phenomenon known as Murphy's Law? Among other things, it says that whatever can go wrong will go wrong. Now, if you live by that philosophy, and many people do, you find yourself growing pessimistic. I want to submit to you that certainly things will go wrong. They will not go as we planned. Certainly, what we expect to happen and what we suppose to happen most often doesn't happen. And things often get worse before they get better. But Christians are not pessimists. We are optimistic realists. I know that life is difficult. I know that things aren't always going to go the way I want them to go. I know that very often things are going to get worse before they get better. Believe me, I know that more than anybody. But I live hopefully... I live hopefully. And how can I live hopefully? Because I've read his book. And more particularly, I've read the end of the book. We win. It is all worth it. It's more than worth it if we stay the course. So we're optimistic realists. We have positive through vision. We know that God is faithful and we can live through the difficulties and the trials and the, uh, the, the supposed-to-happen things that don't happen because we know God. In our text here this morning, if Moses, in going to see Pharaoh, expected a quick resolution with Pharaoh, that is not what's going to happen. God had said to him two things, you recall, back in chapter 4. In verse 12, he promised Moses that he would be with him. My presence will be with you. And he says, and I will teach you what to say. God will put his words in his mouth. And the second thing that God told Moses was that he would, in fact, harden Pharaoh's heart. And Moses now is armed with that information. Pharaoh, the most powerful man on the face of the earth at this particular point in history, has all the power, he has all the money, he has all the slaves. Pharaoh has it all in terms of that which is temporally important. Moses has God. Let the duel begin. We're going to be the, see the beginning now of this duel between Pharaoh and really an anti-God figure, he, he thinks he's God, and the one true God of the Israelites. So the battle is not between Pharaoh and Moses. It's between Pharaoh and God. Any man who exalts himself in opposition to God is doomed to failure. So let's read the passage. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so they may hold a festival to me in the desert. 
Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, Look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and foremen in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw. But require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they are crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the men so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. And then the slave drivers and the foreman went out and said to the people, this is what Pharaoh says, I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, Complete the work required of you each day, just as when you had straw. The Israelite foremen appointed by Pharaoh's slave drivers were beaten and were asked, Why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? And then the Israelite foreman went and appealed to Pharaoh, Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we are told, make bricks. Your servants are beaten, but the fault is with your own people. Pharaoh said, lazy, that's what you are, lazy. That is why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. The Israelite foreman realized they were in trouble when they were told you are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they say, may the Lord look upon you and judge you. You have made us a stench to Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. After reading that, would you suppose that things are not turning out as Moses maybe had hoped? All of us have been in that place, and we will have more places like that in our life. Moses and Aaron had just come from performing the miracles for the Israelites and the elders of Israel in the end of chapter 4. And after performing those miracles and signs attesting to the validity of their mission and the authority that God had invested in them, now they're coming away, the people believe... They're hopeful, and they worship God. So now Pharaoh, or, uh, Moses and Aaron are going to go to Pharaoh. Would you think that Moses and Aaron are in a little bit of a high now? Coming from the elders and coming from the Israelites, and the Israelites are believing, and they have the stamp of approval of the elders? Would you think they're in a little bit of a high? Would you think they would be coming to uh, Pharaoh with, maybe with some boldness and some measure of confidence? I mean, think about it. Moses is on a roll. He's been successful so far. God has given him authority. God's given him miraculous power. The Israelites are on board. They believe. 
It would appear that now, after long years of slavery, these years are about to end with but a command from Moses' mouth. Wouldn't you love to be a fly on the wall in Pharaoh's palace? Moses stands before him, verse 1, and he says what? Thus says the Lord, let my people go. And Pharaoh surely would listen. (laughs) Have you ever said, but God says, and have nobody listen to you? So Pharaoh's response to Moses and Aaron is, oh, wow, really? Okay. Whatever you say, God said. Is that what his response is? Not hardly. No, he responds this way. He says, who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? I don't know your God. Who is the Lord? Pharaoh, by the way, will have that question answered for him more pointedly than he ever imagined, won't he? He'll find out who the Lord is. Now, Pharaoh's question is not simply one designed to get more information. Who is the Lord? Explain about that to me. The point is made here that Pharaoh does not keep the Israelites under lock and key because he doesn't know who the Lord is, but because he doesn't know the Lord. And when you don't know the Lord, you do not accord him respect. You do not honor him as God. Those of us who know the Lord, we honor him. We respect him. We esteem him highly. Isn't that true? When you know the Lord, you fear the Lord. You have a healthy respect for God. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of knowledge. When you know God, when you fear God, you start getting real smart. It's the fool who says in his heart there is no God. It's the fool who does not acknowledge God. The Bible says. So here's Pharaoh. He says, I don't know this God. And he doesn't respect this God. Why? Because this is the so-called God of these Israelites who are slaves. They've been enslaved for a couple hundred years at least. And he must not be a very powerful God if he can't free these slaves. And he sends these two old men, 80 years old, to come and say, God said, let my people go. Not very impressive. So this God must not be very powerful. And so Pharaoh will mock him. Jesus puts it this way, similarly in John's Gospel, chapter 15, verse 21, speaking of how his disciples will be be treated by those who do not know God. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. There's opposition, there's persecution, because they do not know God. He rehearses that same sentiment in the next chapter, John 16, 3. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. It's key to know God. When you don't know God, you have a huge, huge, empty space in your life. And you and I know people who who don't know God, and they try to fill that empty space with lots of stuff. I did. I did. 
Never satisfied. Never satisfied. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18. Speaking of unbelievers, he says, They are darkened in their understanding. They're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to what? The hardening of their hearts. When people harden their hearts, when they dig their heels in, when they kick against the goads, the ignorance in them just continues to grow and is solidified. Just get darker and darker inside. Is that a tragedy? Pharaoh's response is not only disrespectful, his response is sarcastic. He, in effect, mocks this God of the Israelites. He is, with disastrous results, positioning himself to do battle with this God of the Israelites, deliberately stepping in there, deliberately exalting himself. Things are clearly not working out as Moses had presumably anticipated. So, they think, let's repeat, let's rephrase the command. Verse 3. So they say, in effect, read my lips. Perhaps I didn't make myself clear the first time. It is God who met with us. He came to us with this message. Let my people go. God is speaking to you now, Pharaoh, not to two old men. Let us go, or God will be angry with us. And Pharaoh, this includes you also. Now, they reiterate the command of God, and they put it in terms, if you will, of a threat. Now, kings typically do not respond well to threats. And Moses' command now is not even considered by Pharaoh. He's just flat going to ignore it. In verses 4 and 5, Pharaoh says, I'm a busy man. I'm a busy man, and you're wasting my time, and you're wasting the time of all the people. Now, by this time, there are about 2 million Israelites who are slaves. A great many of those, the vast majority probably, uh, are supporting the very economy of Egypt. And now, Pharaoh is looking at Moses and Aaron as interrupting the economy. they got all these people who want to take time up. They want a three-day holiday. <laughs> so Pharaoh says, no, no, no. The people are numerous. They need to be working. Don't interrupt their work. Get back to work. Assuming that Moses and Aaron are slaves, they should be working too, making bricks. In verse 6, Pharaoh next gives a command. And his command is to counter God's command. God's command was what? Let my people go. And he exalts himself in the face of God's command. He gives his own command. From now on, the Israelite slaves will have to gather their own straw to make their quota of bricks. If you didn't know it, straw lent strength to the bricks. Made them much more durable. They lasted longer. They held together better. So straw was an important ingredient. So Pharaoh is going to order that the slaves are going to have to gather their own straw wherever they can find it. Hitherto, they had been provided with that. 
Now, this is not a random decree. This is not Pharaoh just being mean-spirited just for the sake of being mean-spirited. This is a calculated command, and it is calculated to drive a wedge between Moses and the people. Pharaoh didn't get to be Pharaoh because he was some dummy. Very politically astute, knowing exactly what he's doing, and behind that, he is demonically inspired, which we'll talk about a little bit while. Now, certainly, this would be a level of resistance Moses had not expected. Things are getting worse. Things are getting worse. Things are getting worse. But they haven't yet got to the worst point. The obstacles that Moses would have to deal with, if you recall, when he objected to God in the first place and he gave his five objections to God and God answered them, one of them was, the, would the people even believe me and trust me? But not only that, how about the Egyptians' hostility, potential hostility? But those even aren't, aren't even the major problems that he's having to deal with now. He's having to deal now with Pharaoh's clever political maneuver to instill internal conflict. You see, the people had already caught a glimmer of freedom. They already had a glimmer of hope. Moses promised deliverance. They believed. They worshipped God. Their heads have been turned now. They were excited. They were hopeful. And Pharaoh, to discredit the message, will have to discredit the messenger. If you can discredit the messenger... The message has no power. This is why it's so important that we live lives of integrity. That our lives substantially, not perfectly, not totally, but our lives substantially match up with what we say we believe. We say that God has come into our life. We say that God is an agent of change. We say that God saved us. God changes us and transforms us and makes us more like himself. If that's true, then that ought to be reflected to other people, especially non-believers. Non-believers ought to be coming up to us, observing our lives and saying, I like you better. (laughs) Why? Well, because you're you're nicer now. I trust you and... You say nicer things, and your just mood is better. You're not the same old crab puss that I'm used to. <laughs> we have a message. We have a testimony. And if that testimony is to be believed, it has to be backed up with what? The lives, our lives. We're the messengers. We have a message to give. So Pharaoh very savagely, very wonderfully understands that if he can discredit Moses, he can discredit the message. Get to the messenger. Verse 9, he implies that Moses is a liar. Moses and Aaron. People are to get back to work so that they don't believe these lies, implying that Moses and Aaron are liars. You can't trust them. You can't trust them, you can't trust the message. Not only that, but he'll go on further and he'll discredit the people. In verse 8, he calls the people themselves lazy, diminishes them. They're crying out, but they're not lazy. From Pharaoh's point of view, the Israelites are his people and they have no right to complain. They belong to him, they're slaves, they're property. They have no right to complain. And who is this Moses and Aaron coming and fomenting 
unrest and taking the people away from their work and disrupting my economy. Yet it is precisely the cry of the Israelites that God has heard, and it is their cry that he moves him to come and deliver them. Beloved, we cry out to God. We cry out to God. By belittling the Israelites' pain and suffering, Pharaoh is positioning himself even further into direct conflict with God. The God who is concerned for his people, verse 31 of chapter 4, God is concerned for his people. And Moses is putting himself in direct opposition to this God. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, puts it this way. Peter writes to the church, the persecuted church in the days of Nero who are suffering incredible persecution. And he says to them, cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. God, thank you that you care for me. Thank you that you know what's going on. I can cast my anxieties on you. Lord, I've got to get to sleep, and since you're going to be up all night anyway, I'm going to cast my cares on you Amen. so I can sleep. Right, Carrie? <laughs> God cares for us. God cares for us. Turn to your neighbor and just say, you know what? God cares for us. Tell somebody. Now, verse 9 tells us, verse 9 tells us that the result of Pharaoh's decree is that the Israelites must work harder. But God's command is that they should not have to work at all. Pharaoh wants them to work harder and harder and harder. God doesn't want them to work at all. God wants them to come out and worship. Satan wants us to work harder and harder and harder. God wants us to come away and worship. It's no different today than it was back in Moses' day. God wants us to worship. He's my burden, his light. My yoke is easy. There's great irony here, I think. As Pharaoh punishes Israel by making the people work harder, his heart gets harder. He would have to have a hardened heart. I mean, to, to not forgive somebody, to not let somebody go, not to express grace to somebody, you deliberately have to harden your heart against them, don't you? And of course, as Christians, we never do that, do we? We never harden our hearts. Get out here, you fly. <laughs> Incidentally, I thought this, this interesting. The Hebrew word for work in this text, work harder, comes from the same root word meaning worship. Look at the picture there. Work, worship. Work or worship. Pharaoh and the Lord are both competing, so to speak, with each other. Whom will the Israelites serve and how will they serve? Is it going to be labor or is it going to be worship? The battle continues in verse 10. Notice, this is what Pharaoh says. 
hearkening back to verse 1. This is what the Lord says. The Lord has given this command. Pharaoh has given this command. The battle is ongoing. The Lord gives the command to release the Israelites, but Pharaoh, the false god, commands that they stay, and as a bonus, he increases their workload. How marvelous. Verses 13 and 14, we have the Israelite foreman. These are the men who are employed by the uh, Egyptian slave drivers who directly oversee the Israelites in their brick-making enterprise. They're responsible for making sure that the daily quota of bricks does not diminish, and they are now beaten by the Egyptian slave drivers, the foremen. So they think perhaps there's been some mistake, some breakdown in the chain of command, and so they go to Pharaoh. And they say to Pharaoh, in effect, why are you beating us? Your people are the ones who have stopped supplying us with straw. It's their fault. If anything, beat them. In verse 15, we're told the foreman appealed to Pharaoh. It's the same word in the Hebrew from verse 8 as cry out. Notice, in effect, the foreman cry out to who? Pharaoh. Who do you think they should have cried out to? God. We make the same mistake. We cry out to people. We cry out to others who can't really make a difference. When we should be crying out to, appealing to whom? God. And the fact that we would do that is a testimony of our faith. The fact that I would actually cry out to God. I would bypass those others who can't do anything about my dilemma. Once again, oppressed Israelites cry out because of their oppression, and once more, Pharaoh does not listen. And yet it is precisely because of those cries that the Lord has heard, and we will act soon. You and I have confidence, beloved. You say, but I've prayed, and I've prayed, and nothing seems to change. I don't see a light at the end of the tunnel. There is no light at the end of the tunnel. There isn't. No. Where is it? Psalm 112, verse 4 says, Light arises in the midst of the darkness for the upright. You don't know when God is going to break through in time and space and history. You don't know when He is going to come and bring deliverance. You don't know when He's going to come and bring relief. So He has us living hopefully every day. Isn't that glorious? Yes, thank you, Carrie. God will act. He cares for his people. Either we believe that or we don't. We're not fatalists. We don't live hopelessly. We live with through vision that says, God, today, 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 if not today, then tomorrow. Lord, my hope is in you. My trust is in you. Pharaoh not only refuses to hear their cry, but he mocks as well. He repeats the same accusation that he did in verse 8. Now in, in verse 17, he says, lazy, that's what you are, lazy. Now Pharaoh cuts off all communication between himself and the people. 
He simply tells them in verse 18, get back to work. No more talking about this. Get back to work. The messenger of God, Moses, you have to appreciate this. Moses, who God spoke to out of the burning bush, who God commissioned to go and deliver his people, who God assured that his presence would be with him, indeed his words would be in his mouth. God, who gave him power to demonstrate and to prove his calling to the elders of Israel and to the people of Israel. This Moses, this messenger of God, is now perilously close to seeing his entire mission evaporate before his very eyes. It doesn't look good, humanly speaking. But thankfully, humanly speaking, isn't all there is. So as the foreman now, they leave Pharaoh, they leave his presence, and they, as they're leaving, they encounter Moses and Aaron. And they come out to Moses and Aaron who are waiting for them, and they say to Moses and Aaron, Pharaoh is not going to let us go. We must go back and pray some more, Moses and Aaron, right? Is that what he says? No. No. They immediately turn on Moses and Aaron and they pronounce a curse on them in verse 21. God damn you, Moses and Aaron. God damn you, Moses and Aaron. Wow. Have they forgotten so quickly? Have they forgotten so quickly that it was Pharaoh who enslaved them? Have they forgotten so quickly who is responsible for the latest, this latest insane decree to make bricks without straw? Had they also forgotten Moses' display of power? Had they forgotten their commitment, whereby they were convinced of the authority with which Moses was invested? It reminds me just in terms of just current events, how quickly, when things don't go as they should go in our own minds, how quickly we turn on those who are leading us. We have a president who is committed to a course of action, and I don't mean to be political here. But we have a president who is committed to a course of action, and, and because... Uh, he apparently has stirred up a hornet's nest of terrorism. Now everybody's yelling at him, get out, get out, get out. Look what you've caused. Hello? The terrorists were there before. They attacked us. Things are going to get worse before they get better. He told us that in a speech two weeks ago. Life is like that. Moses experienced that. You talk to any pastor in this world, and any pastor in this world will tell you things are going to get worse before they get better. So gird your loins for action. And yet when things do get worse, out come the grumblers. Out come the, the unbelievers. Out come the ones, well... Well, you shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have done that because look what's happening now. 
And any pastor worth his salt is going to ignore those people. He's going to say, we are going to stay the course. We are going to stay the course. We are going to trust God. We are not going to waffle and we're not going to wilt in the, terms of, in, the, in the face of opposition. We worship a God who is mighty, who is almighty, and he has promised to be with us and to work all things for our good. And yet here this plan of deliverance In what we can see in the visible realm, this plan of deliverance seems to be falling apart at the seams right now. It doesn't look good, humanly speaking. And how ironic, how ironic to call God's judgment down on the very one whom he has chosen to deliver his people. Man, oh man. You talk about short-sightedness. But... That's sheep. (laughs) Moses expects, and I think perhaps rightly so, he expects to be greeted with open arms by the slaves he has come to lead out of bondage, but now, instead of greeting him, they turn on him. Their situation is admittedly harsher now that Moses has come, but it's not his fault. The Israelites' reaction to Moses is indicative of this. Their reaction to him is indicative of their own hardness of heart. Their own unbelief. Not only towards Moses, but towards the God who's come to save them. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. And they shall rise up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. They that wait upon the Lord. The parting shot... The parting shot by the foreman leveled at Moses. You've made us a stench to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hands to kill us. Not enough that they curse him, but they throw this at him too. The Israelites had been a stench to Pharaoh long before Moses came on the scene. And it wasn't Moses who put a sword in the Egyptians' hand to kill them. No. Moses' own life, in fact, was threatened at birth, chapter 2, wasn't it? Moses is not the cause of their troubles. He is a participant in them. You and I are fellow strugglers. We're in this together. That's why when we see someone who's about to fall off the side of the train, we grab them and pull them back on and say, Don't fall off the train! Don't quit. Don't give up. We're fellow strugglers. We're in this together. We're in this together. The foremen have it backward. 
this Moses whom they treat so disrespectfully is not the reason for their oppression, but he is indeed God's instrument to end that oppression. If they would just but trust. If they would just but trust. They'd seen the miracles. As, as Paul says to the Galatians, you started out so well. <laughs> you started out so well. There's two significant lessons, I think, to be learned from this passage. First, the enemies of God's people are enemies of God. Very important lesson. The enemies of God's people are the enemies of God. Pharaoh demands the people's allegiance despite the Lord's claim on them. Pharaoh sets himself up as God. He's the enemy of God as well as the enemy of God's people. This goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, by the way. Genesis chapter 3, you recall Satan deceived the woman into eating the fruit of the tree that God told him not to eat from by placing himself in a position of hostility towards God. We see that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, by the very fact that he asked this question, Has God really said? What did God say? Calling into question God's word and God's character. Satan is not simply hostile to God. He is, by questioning God's word, attempting to replace God's authority with his own. And the results are disastrous. Satan is and always has been the ultimate source for opposition against God's people. Let me say that again. Satan is and always has been the ultimate source for opposition against God's people. You don't see him very often show up in the Old Testament, much more prominent in the New Testament. But every so often you'll see him pop his head up in the Old Testament. We get a little bit of visibility here and there. But you know that he's always behind the scenes, always behind the scenes, inciting, inciting. He is the ultimate inspiration for anyone who would pit their own authority against that of the Lord. He's always seeking to usurp the authority of God. To usurp the authority of God. In Jesus' ministry, you see at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, it was Satan who attempted to, to get Jesus to abandon his mission. Remember the, the three um, uh, uh, temptations he posed to Jesus? Do it this way. Do the, go the easier way. You don't have to go this way. There's an easier way. I always tell people when they, when they are at a fork in the road and they're facing a decision, I say, which is the harder road to take? Take that one. Which is the road that require more faith? Which is the road that require you to depend on God more? Take that road. Don't take the easier road. Though we're tempted greatly to do it. This Satan emphasized God talk to Jesus. He twisted the scriptures, you recall, to tempt Jesus not to trust his father. His pride in dealing with Jesus the new Moses, 
He's our deliverer, isn't he? His pride is simply a more pronounced version of Pharaoh's. Who is the Lord? Don't listen to him. Listen to me. Thus says Pharaoh. Thus says Satan. Nothing's changed, really. Just the names and faces. As believers, we should be aware Satan is an enemy, not only of our Lord, but of us. He's an enemy. If you're sitting here this morning and you don't believe in Satan, he's already got you. He's already got you. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. He says, be self-controlled and alert. Why? Because you have an enemy, you have an adversary who's on the prowl like a roaring lion seeking whom he may lick. Like a big kiss, a kitty cat, right? No, seeking whom he may what? Devour. Destroy. And his effectiveness is due at least in part to his ability to deceive. He is called the liar. The Apostle Paul identifies him this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, when he says, No wonder, for Satan masquerades as an angel of light. How many people are deceived today? Because he makes things seem so right. It seems so right. In Revelation chapter 13, you might want to write this reference down, look it up later. Revelation chapter 13, we see the beast and the dragon. Same, same, same issues. The beast and the dragon, who are the Satan-slash-anti-God figures in Revelation, they are persuasive because they imitate God's speech and power. The dragon, the beast... In fact, in verse 6 of chapter 13 of Revelation, the beast blasphemes God. He attempts to mislead God's people by usurping God's authority. Pharaoh, too, is against God's people, trying to deceive them by putting his word and his authority against that of God's. He, too, uses God talk that directly opposes what God intends for the Israelites. The Lord has said, Pharaoh has said. Putting himself up there and opposing the authority of God. Beloved, just as Moses will prove victorious over Pharaoh and his pride, Jesus Christ, our Moses, is victorious over the deceptions and attacks of Satan. Our Lord's death and his resurrection are the final blow to any hope that Satan has of keeping us Slaves to sin. Jesus has indeed set us free. That's the truth. That's the absolute truth. When you become a Christian, when you open your life to the Lord, when you recognize that you are lost, when you recognize that you are a sinner, when you recognize that you have no power to overcome, you cannot read positive mental attitude books and make yourself better. It takes God coming into you and doing a sovereign work of transformation. 
It's God who changes people. We do not change ourselves. It's the risen Lord with resurrection power who takes these people that we are who are dead to God and raises us to new life. And now we are alive to God. It's a miracle. It's an absolute miracle. You go, what happened to me? God came into my life. I didn't just get religious. God woke me up from the dead. God did this. I can't claim anything. Nothing. This is the miracle of being a Christian. This is what it means to be born again. Are you one of those born again? The second thing that we learn from this chapter is God's presence does not guarantee immediate results. Have you ever done this? Come on, God. Now. God's presence does not guarantee immediate results. You say, where's God when I need him? Is he sleeping? Is he taking a nap? He's in the restroom. Oh, it's Memorial Day. He's on vacation. No. God is not absent and then all of a sudden shows up just in the nick of time to save. He has promised to be with his people. That's what he told Moses. I'm going to be with you through this whole thing. Jesus says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I'll be with you to the end of the age. What doesn't feel like he's with me. We don't live by our feelings. We live by faith in what God says. God says, I'm with you. Okay, that sells it. He's with me. He's not absent. But here's poor Moses. Here's poor Moses really getting out there. When push comes to shove, he's confronting Pharaoh as he was commanded to do. Moses suddenly finds himself behind the proverbial eight ball. Where is God? Has God abandoned him? No. No. Beloved, we should remember that the problem is not so much that Pharaoh refuses to let the people go. God said that would happen. Rather, the problem is that the people whom Moses has just won over begin to grumble. That's the problem. They are worse off now than before Moses came, and the people begin to resist Moses. That's the problem. Have you ever had to wait? Have you ever had to wait? Wait on something very important? Waiting does something to us, but it also does something for us. They that wait upon the Lord. The question simply comes down to this. Why does God delay? Why does God delay? Has God ever delayed in anybody's life? Has he delayed in your life? If, 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 if God's delayed, raise your hand. God delayed in your life. No! I got gotcha. you. 
God's timing is perfect. At the appointed hour. At just the right moment. God's not late and He's not early. Oh, I nailed you so bad. (laughs) You walked right into that one, boy. You walked right into that one. Did God seem to delay in the case of Abraham and Isaac? How many years? How many years did Abraham have to wait? 25. 25 years before Isaac was born. Did God seem to delay in the case in the life of Joseph? For Joseph, as for Abraham, things certainly turned worse before they got better. Isn't that true? Yeah. Although in the end, God's ultimate purposes clearly came into view. Jesus' own ministry. Jesus' own ministry was beset with resistance from both outside and from inside. Would you not expect that here comes Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah, And Israel, when Jesus came, Israel was living in the midst of the greatest messianic hope and expectation of their history. They knew from all the prophecies that that the Messiah was going to show up at any minute. And you would think when Jesus shows up that there would be complete capitulation in the face of the Son of God who's finally come. And yet John records this in his Gospel. John chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. Note this. He was in the world... And though the world was made through him, the world did not even recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. My, 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 my. God's presence was with him more than with any who had come before, but even that does not guarantee swift, immediate fulfillment of God's plan. And just as Jesus met with opposition, so did his apostles. Just think of Paul. Did Paul meet with any opposition? Yeah. I mean, why, why, why can it be? Why can it be that Paul, Paul would go from town to town, wave his Bible around, and see masses converted in droves to unswervingly pure lives and sound doctrine? Why didn't that happen? Why didn't it just go smoothly? Was it God's plan that the gospel be preached? That people be saved? Oh, absolutely. The same holds true of the church today. The richest blessing of Christ to the church. The richest blessing of Christ to the church is the indwelling Holy Spirit. Now think about this. But even this richest blessing of blessings to the church does not guarantee that our service to the Lord will not take unexpected turns and twists. I have the very power of the living God resonant in me But that does not mean that I'm not going to experience in carrying out His will, living out His will, unexpected turns and twists. Peter, again, speaking to those first century saints who were suffering terrifically under Nero's persecution. He says to them, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. Most of us go, What? What's the deal? What did I do to deserve this? Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. None of us are immune. 
Trials are inevitable. Misery doesn't have to be. Amen? Amen. We will have experiences like Moses before Pharaoh. Even when we're positive that we're obeying God's command, even in the middle, smack dab center of the will of God, I promise you, struggles will persist. They will be there. In fact, it seems that we struggle not despite our intimacy with God, but precisely because of it. And when we encounter struggles, when we encounter trials, it is good to remember this often quoted but seldom understood phrase, God is in control. God is in control. Say that with me. God is in control. One more time. God is in control. Don't forget that, because next time, that's the lesson that Moses will begin to learn. Aren't you glad that God is in control? Aren't you glad that though life is not going as you thought it should, though things may be getting worse before they get better, they are going to get better. God is in control. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this hope that we have, an ever-present hope. Thank you for the confidence you give us. Lord, as we live by faith, we trust what you say in this book called the Bible, the living Word of God. We love you today. Our hope is in you. You are faithful. And we pray your will be done and your kingdom come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor, look him right in the eye and say, God is in control. Let's stand.